You see up here the most famous picture or painting of the Westminster Assembly that met from 1642 to the 1650s. Uh, you see, every, if you do any search on Google, you see this, this picture coming up and so on. Uh, it's a great picture, great artistry. The problem is that uh, it's not accurate. <laughs> there are people there that weren't there at all. Uh, you have John Owen present. You have uh, John Bunyan in the picture. You have all kinds of people that uh, uh, lived at the same time, but they weren't necessarily invited to uh, the assembly. But I think the author, the painter, thought that would give it more credibility if he added inaccurate information into the picture. If you ever go to the uh, Westminster Abbey and peek into the Jerusalem room, which is supposed to be, that's the room that this is supposed to represent, and all that you have in your mind is this picture, you're going to be sorely disappointed. It's a tiny room, smaller than this, uh, maybe it's from, at the most, the pole to this wall here. And uh, it does not have this majestic fireplace as, as the center of the room. It's actually the fireplace is one little corner of, uh, of the room there. But this is a great picture. And uh, you see John Owen um, over here talking to Jeremiah Burroughs. Um, and uh, they may have known each other, but they didn't talk at this particular place. So, uh, but, but why we have this picture here? Well, the, the picture is here because we're going to start today and for a few Sundays uh, talk about the Sabbath. We've been, we've been uh, as a session, um, talking about it actually for over a year, about the possibility of a series on the Sabbath day, the Lord's day, and uh, we're going to use the Westminster Confession of Faith and larger catechism to help us in this study to frame our study. It's not going to be just a study of the Westminster Confession Catechism, uh, but we can anchor our outline on that. And uh, we're going to be looking then at chapter 21 of the Confession to begin with. Now, I'm saying this is going to be a series on the Sabbath day, and today we're not going to be talking about the Sabbath, uh, because the chapter, as we're going to see in a moment, begins with actually a description of the public and private worship of God's people. So we're going to do that because my legalistic self could not skip the first six paragraphs of the chapter and go to chapter to paragraph seven. So we're going to start and today, Lord willing, just for today, look at what it says concerning public and private worship, because really that's one of the most important business of the Sabbath day. Uh, the, the Puritans, the, the English uh, pastors that served the church from about 1550 to 1662, the, 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 it's interesting that's really hard to pen, to pin down when the Puritan movement began, but it's easy, really easy to pin down when it ended, because it's ended by the decree of King Charles II. By the way, as, if you're a Christian Protestant, King Charles, the King Charles, that title, it's never been a good title for Protestants in, the, in England or in, in British history. King Charles I was a tyrant against Bible-believing Protestant. King Charles II was even worse. We'll see how King Charles III 
does. That's his title. The current king of, uh, of Great Britain is uh, King Charles III. The uh, Puritans loved the Lord's Day. And they loved the Lord's Day because they loved the scriptures and they loved the Lord. They used to call it the market, marketplace of the soul. Is where you'd go. Is the day that God had given us for us to be refreshed, to us to make provision for our souls, to to grow in Him. A day where we could lay aside everything else in life. A day in which we're, on which we're giving, given God's permission to just forget about everything else, uh, and so that we could grow in the Lord. A lot of times when God's people hear about the Sabbath and hear about a series on the Sabbath, they, one of the first thoughts that comes to people's mind is, there he goes, he's going to tell us what I can and cannot do on Sunday. And you know what? Yeah, that's going to be part of it. Because guess what the Bible does? It tells us what to do and not to do in every area of life. But I hope that that's not your immediate reaction, at least that you, excuse me, that you have an open mind to that, to what we're going to be talking about. Because... The Sabbath day is not given us as a punishment, not as a burden. As a matter of fact, we saw in Psalm 119 already that God's law is not burdensome. So if we, if we find it a burden, it's because the problem is right here within us, not in what God tells us to do. So let's, let's try to look at this as a blessing, as something that God's given us for the good of his people. As the Lord Jesus himself says, the man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for the man, for us, for us to enjoy, for us to be able to experience on earth a little bit of heaven. If you don't like the idea of a Sabbath, you don't like the idea of a heaven either, because it is the sign that God's given us for us to have a little bit of understanding what heaven, what eternity will be. Often uh, people have described the Lord's Day, the Sabbath, the Sunday, as mountain, mountain, a mountain peak. You know, we, last summer, we've done a couple of times, but last summer we, we went up Mount Eleanor, Emily and I, and uh, Alistair and Jennifer, and uh, maybe Grace went up with us as well. And I'm telling you, the only thing that got me up there was pride. I was ready to quit several times. I, mean, I don't know. I, I literally think within 100 feet of beginning, I was ready to, <laughs> I was ready to stop. It was just because everybody else was going that the high captain going. I see little kids going up and I, ah, and I'm like, <gasps> no, I was ready to, to die. But then you get to the top and you can see almost all the way to the Pacific. And you can see the valley below and you can see all kinds of things. And, and the Sabbath day is that mountaintop experience, not the climbing, but the mountaintop experience which you can see that like a little peak into heaven. And that carries you through the valley of this next week till you ascend to the next Lord's Day and you have a little peak into heaven again. And then it, it is just how the Sabbath works. So I hope that we can see that as we um, walk through this. Chapter 21 of the Confession is on page uh, 860 of the hymnal. So using the little numbers on the bottom of the page, if you grab a hymnal and turn to page 860, I think I'm right. Is that where it is? Okay. Okay. 
there's nothing greater, there's nothing more important that we do in life than worshiping God. It's not witnessing to people. It's not fighting social injustice. It's not um, resolving the problem of hunger in the world. Uh, it's not being kind. All these things are super important. We should be involved in all these things. But really, the most important thing we do is worship God. Because of all these things I just listed, the only thing that's going to last forever is worshiping God. And the confession helps us see the importance of that and, and the structure of what we should do in worship. So chapter 21 starts in the very first paragraph. And I have up here, and you can look up here, but keep your um, handbook open so that you can actually um, relate to it as well. It says that the revelation of God in nature demands worship. The confession says, The light of nature showeth that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is good, and doeth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all heart, with all the soul, and with all the might. So, revelation, the revelation of God in nature, as we look at nature, that demands worship. That drives people to worship. And you see that, that's, you can see that that's true experientially. You see that there's the need to worship. There's not one culture in the history of the world that didn't worship something. For the longest time, they thought that uh, the Aborigines of Australia defied that norm. And uh, atheists would really hang on to that because it was the only culture in the history of the world that they could not determine a religious aspect. And the more they, they studied the Aborigines culture, it became clear that the Aborigines actually worshipped as well. So that's one of those absolutes. There's no culture in the world where something is not worshipped. An interesting thing is that the Bible already told us that that was the case. When in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, the Bible says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes about God are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So in the very beginning, everybody can see that there is a God, and that he needs to be a worship. And that shows up in every single culture. And you say, oh, but we here in the Pacific Northwest don't worship anything because we are a sophisticated people. Well, just, just be honest and look at the different worldviews that are around uh, the environmentalist worldview, the uh, uh, social justice worldview, the uh, transgender worldview, whatever worldview you want to look at. Ultimately, there's a, a matter of worship. There's some, something that you're serving. There's something that you're adoring. There's something that you're elevating. There's a goal. There's an ideal that you're trying to reach, that you're trying to bring everything else in conformity. That's, that's worship. So you see that that's everywhere. And creation tells us that there is a God that should be uh, worshipped. You, you all remember Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, where the, the psalmist tells us how everything declares the glory of God. The sun, the stars, the moon, everything shows that there is a God that needs to be uh, worshipped there. 
But, uh, but natural revelation, what we see in creation, is not sufficient to tell us how to worship God. And the confession tells us too. And not only that, we reject that, that revelation. Romans 1 tells us too that even though everyone, every person who's ever been born in this world knows that there's a God that must be worshipped, that apart from the work of the Spirit of God in their hearts, they suppress that truth. They, they put it down, they hold down, they keep on telling to themselves that there is no God, that there is no true God of the Bible. So it's there, but they suppress. But the problem is that worshiping is such a part of our nature that we can't help but express it. And Romans 1 says that. So, instead of worshiping the true God, because worship is such a part of our nature, people start worshiping created things. Uh, in less sophisticated society, they will worship uh, an idol, four-footed things, birds, the sun, the moon, the stars. In sophisticated society like ours, they worship the environment, they worship uh, sexual revolution, they worship other things, but that necessity to worship just pops up. Uh, I've, I've used this example before, but growing up, I can't remember, what I don't know, maybe the name is English, just goo. But uh, they get these buckets of, of a gel-like, a jellish-like substance. And it was, it was very malleable, and when you squeezed it, it would pop kind of through your, the, between your fingers, right? That's, that's how the suppression of God works. We, in our natural state, suppress that, but the worship of God pops through our fingers as we try to push it down, but it just manifests itself in the worship of the wrong, the wrong thing, the wrong, the wrong God. So, just the, the natural revelation, general revelation is not enough to focus us on the worship of the right God because we suppress that. So, God gives us revelation of the worship of God in the scriptures themselves. So, it says there, still in paragraph one, but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself and so limited by his own revealed will, that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men, or the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representation, or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. So what is this, in essence, saying? I'll say the simple way, then we're going to start in the complicated way. The simple way of, of summarizing this is that God gets to tell us how he's going to be worshipped. That, that's what this is saying, that God gets to tell us how he's going to be worshipped. And that makes a lot of sense. If, if the worship is of God, if we are here to please him, we are here to adore him, we are here to elevate him, we, he gets to tell us how he wants to be worshipped, how he wants to be loved, how he wants to be adored. I, I can say, uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to love Adam, I wanted to please him. So I'm going to love him by bringing to him the fattiest, milkiest, creamiest ice cream that I can find. To which Adam's going to say, do you want to kill me? <laughs> because he's highly allergic to that. So Adam might say, well, but it might be better that you love me in this other way that doesn't kill me. 
that's, that's just an example of the absurdity of our trying to worship God by our own invention of how that should look like instead of God telling us how that should take place. Does it make sense what I'm saying so far? You know, God instituted how he wants to be worshipped. It's interesting that in Deuteronomy 12, so you understand what's going on in Deuteronomy, right? The people of God has spent uh, 39 years wandering. We always talk about 40, but the first one, it wasn't really a wander, uh, wandering. They're just waiting at Mount Sinai for the law, and then they sin, and then for the next 39, they wander around. It's about 38, sorry, because the last one there is just sitting outside of Cana waiting to go in, but you got the picture. Uh, they're there waiting to cross the Jordan to go into the promised land. Moses, God through Moses, reminds them of all the things that God has said so far. That's why the name of the book is called Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy the second law, the second giving of the law, the, the rehearsal, re- rehearsing of everything that God has already said. So it, uh, Moses is preparing them. And in chapter 12, he prepares them to worship God in the promised land. And the interesting that he, Moses just doesn't say there in chapter 12, don't worship false gods. He says that. that. Don't worship false gods. That's somewhat of a given. But he also says, don't worship the true God falsely. And that's why he spends more time in than don't worship false gods. He assumed that the people of God knew that was a bad thing. He still says, don't worship false gods. But he spends more time telling them not to use the forms of worship that they find in the land to try to worship the true God. Are you following me on, on this one? That God is not only concerned that he be worshipped, that, that he be worshipped rightly. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 12, verses 29 through 32, Moses says, when the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you not, do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did this, these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. And so that's through verse 30. Then this is key. This is what Moses says in verse 31. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. You shall not borrow from what the world of Canaan is doing to worship the Lord your God, the the God of the Bible. And then he goes on to describe for the rest and the rest of the Bible how the God of the Bible should be worshipped. So we can't be borrowing things from out there. That's not what God told us to do. You know, we, we might say, you know, one of the things that the Deuteronomy 12 brings up is that don't sacrifice your kids to the Lord your God. Don't literally bring your kids to church and have them slashed for the sake of God. Because that's what the people in the land did. It's like, oh, we'll never do that. But there are other little things that we might be more socially acceptable that we might be willing to borrow from society because it works, it attracts people and whatever. But the goal of worship is never to attract people. The goal of worship is not to make it palatable for somebody who is not a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul that makes that very, very clear in 1 Corinthians 14 when he says, if when you believers are gathered together and are worshiping the true God, an unbeliever happens to walk by and hears what you're saying, he might be converted. But the worship of God is about God's people worshiping their God. 
And our goal should never be to try to attract somebody who's never been converted by the Spirit of God. Does that make sense? Any questions on that? All right, so this belief is what is called the regulative principle of worship. That the scriptures regulate, therefore regulative, regulate what we do in worship. There's really two views of worship in Christianity. And, and you know, in those two, you're going to have different um, spots in the continuum of those views. One is the regulative, regulative principle. That is, that the Bible gets to regulate what we do in worship. We only do what the Bible commands. The other view is that we can do anything the Bible doesn't forbid. So one's called the regulative principle. The other one's called the normative principle. That we can follow, follow whatever norm we want as long as the Bible does. Okay, the Bible forbids sacrificing kids, so we're not going to do that. But whatever else the Bible doesn't forbid is no, fair game. We can do that. And I think, sadly, most of evangelicalism in America, at least, follows that second one. Well, if the Bible doesn't forbid, we're going to just do that, where we say, no, God gets to tell us what we should do. So what the Bible commands, we do. Any questions before we continue? All right, so it's easy to agree on the abstract, right? It's when we start getting into the actual specifics of things that uh, people tend to disagree. Now, people, I, I have never met a Christian that says God is not sovereign. Everybody agrees that God is sovereign in the abstract. Is when you start getting into the particular, is he sovereign over your baby crying all night and keeping you up? Wow. No, then we start kind of uh, wondering about the sovereignty there. So to look f- for ways to worship God outside of the scriptures is to give yourself over to the imagination, as the confession says, and devices of men and the suggestions of Satan. Our, our hearts, even the regenerate heart, is still able to come up with all kinds of idols. And if we're not regulated by the scriptures, those idols will come up in the way that we worship God uh, himself. So, if you think about it, a lot of churches have lost their focus on worship. A lot of people in the church have lost their focus on, on worship. What, what people like or want becomes the focus of worship instead of what God prescribes for us to do. They, in essence, they look around the land to look for, to see how other nations worship their gods, to use uh, Deuteronomy 12 uh, language. All right, so that's ch- paragraph one of chapter 21. Any questions on that or comments before we continue and jump into paragraph two? Yes, Heather. How did the transition happen to stop worshiping the way God What, I don't understand the, the last... believers, like the new believers of Christ, there wasn't the New Testament. So how did that transition happen according to God's word in the way that... You're going to have to wait to paragraph 7. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> but it's coming. Okay. If the Lord doesn't come first. Because you never know how long these series are going to go. So. <laughs> but yeah, so it, it, is, it, it is on the schedule to talk about the transition from the Sabbath day 
to the first day. Yeah. From creation to the coming of Christ, the God's people worship on the seventh day, from the resurrection of Christ to the return of Christ, God's people worship on the, the first day. Okay. Linda? So did you say normative was not what a good church does? Or is it that, that's what I think, yes. Okay. Regulative principle is what a, a good church should follow, which is, means the Bible controls what we do in worship. Any other questions about paragraph one? All right, so paragraph two tells us the object of worship. It says there, religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's Holy Spirit, if you're not aware. And to Him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creature. And since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other but of Christ alone. So the Bible teaches, we're going to see that we are to worship God and God alone. That's the point here. And the second point it's making is that we need somebody to go between us and God. Since, since Genesis chapter 3, we don't have direct access to God. We need some sort of mediator to go between us. Well, God alone is the proper object of worship. Only God can be worshipped. Can we think of Bible passages that teach that? Does the Bible teach that? That's pretty... Basic, so passage should be popping into our heads. Does the Bible teach anywhere that only God should be worshipped? Or are we wasting our time doing that? Okay, the first commandment. Yeah, you should not have any other gods beside, beside me or before me. What else? The great commandment, right? The great, greatest commandment, worship the Lord your God with all your soul, all your being. What else? Emily? Yeah, Romans eleven thirty six. For of him and through him and from him are all things, so him be the glory. What else? Grace. 12.1 that says... Yes. Yes. What else? Scott? Uh, in Matthew 4.10, Jesus quotes uh, Deuteronomy 6.13. Uh, in response to what? The, the, is it, is it, to, to misinterpret To do what? Worship. Exactly, yeah. So in response to, to Satan there in Matthew 4, Jesus says, only worship the true God, nothing else, nobody else. Do you see a hand over here? Nick? Yeah, pretty much every time an angel appears to someone and they fall down to worship, the angel says, don't you know, worship God. Yes or no? There are times where angels, an angel accepts worship. Yes. And there's a reason for that that we're going to look at maybe a little later. Okay? But it's true. Like, John drops down to worship the angel that's giving him the revelation, the book of Revelation, and says, wait, buddy, we're, we're pals here. Get up. Don't worship me. Worship God only. Yeah. Well, and, and the destruction of the Canaanites for the, because they worship false gods, all that. You, know, you can see that, that the scriptures do, do teach that. Now, why do you think this language? Why do you think uh, the confession says to him only, uh, to him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creature? Why do you think that line is there? What, what, what's the context of the... the, the 
the, the Catholic Church, right? So uh, that's the, what they're addressing there. And the Roman Catholic Church has different degrees of worship, and they worship different things. And they, so they use different words to say that they're okay. So the Godhead is worship. So it's all worship in English, the word worship. But the Godhead, is, is the kind of worship is described by the Latin word latria. So the only the Godhead receives that. Okay? Now, Mary receives hyperdulia, which is another form. In, in English, all these are translated worship. And then the saints are worship with a dulia kind of worship. So they have these different levels of worship. But at the end, that's not what the Bible says, worship different things at different level. It says worship God only, and that's it. Uh, Deuteronomy 5, which is, no, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, are the two recordings of the Ten Commandments. It says this, you shall have no other gods, that's the Second Commandment, First and Second Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make you for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the, the water on the earth, or you shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations to those who hate me. So notice that worshiping images here in the Bible is equated with hating God. Now, I'm not saying that everybody that is in the Roman Catholic Church that does that is hating God conscientiously. It's not their own purpose doing that. But that's what the Bible says, so we have to, we have to submit to that, that worshiping God through images is hating God, according to the Word of God. Any questions on that? Right. So uh, we have the Roman Catholic branch of Christianity. Then you also have the Eastern Orthodox branch of Christianity. They don't do statues. There's actually, they fought. They, they were, that's one of the reasons why the East and the West broke is because the West were big on statues and the East wouldn't do the statues. Because they said, the command says, don't make any graven images. So graven means, you know, will you whittle something and make a statue? That conclusion was, but it's okay to have pictures. Because pictures are two-dimensional, not three-dimensional. That's actually how the theology goes. So they have what they call icons. So we have these. And they're very careful, artistically, to only not have depth in the pictures. So they look artistically not very good, you know, because they're these flat images. There's no depth in them, so that they would be always too... too deep. I think uh, when... Uh, David and Sonia were missionaries in Athens or in Greece. They had to deal with, uh, with the Greek Orthodox Church and that idea. But that's just a misinterpretation, right? That is worship God through anything that's not God is a false worship of God. Any questions on that? And then the second half says that God can only be worshipped through Christ, the mediator, since the fall. Now, God, remember what Jesus says, no one can come to the Father except through me. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So in order to approach God, we need to come through Jesus Christ. There's no other way. Only the, because in the person of Jesus Christ, God and man are brought together. He is God-man. So they're brought together, therefore that's the only way through which we can get to God, is through uh, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, any questions on that?
So now we're going to drill down to more practical, the more practical level, the confession drills down to the elements of worship. What is it that we should do in worship? And here they bring together both public and private worship. In paragraph 3 and 4, it deals with prayer. It says, prayer with thanksgiving being one special part of religious worship is by God required of all men. And that is that it may be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of, the, of His Spirit, according to His will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, perseverance, and if vocal, in a known language. So, what is it saying? Who are we to pray to? Yeah, God works. God. Because the Bible says, otherwise it's sin. Because Jesus said so. So all those Sunday school words we can include in this particular answer here. So the object of prayer is God himself. That's what we're praying to. All prayers must be directed to the Father through the mediation of the Son with the help of the Spirit. So that's how we should try to pray. And it's not that there are no other. It's not that there isn't other examples of prayer, of prayer to, to Jesus, to the Spirit. But in the clearest example of prayer, the one that, that God, the Lord says, "Pray this way," is a prayer to the Father, in the name of the Son, through the medi- through the mediation of the Spirit. So we should we should structure our prayers, and especially our public prayers, in this way. We pray to the Father because of the Son through the Spirit. That's how we should, we, we should try to organize our prayers. And notice that all people are required to pray. It's a universal requirement for humanity. Uh, so if all humans are supposed to pray, how much more are those that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? And he says if prayer is, is, is vocal, that is, it's allowed, it should be known in a known tongue. And Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 14, 12 through 15. Any, any questions on the content, on the object, to whom we should pray? Okay, all right. Now, the content of prayer in paragraph 4, prayer is to be made for things lawful and for all sorts of men living or that shall live hereafter, but not for the dead, nor for those of whom it may be known that they, may, that, that they have sinned the sin unto death. All right, so... What, we're supposed, what can we pray for? For everything except for what God forbids, right? So, because the, the Bible says so. With, instead of being anxious, we're supposed to do what? Pray. With, bring all supplications with all prayer and thanksgiving, right? So, uh, we, we are to pray about all things that God tells us to do. So we have to pray for lawful things, things that are in the declared the Bible, the de- de- declared will of God, uh, you know, and according to His will. Remember the third petition of the Lord's Prayer is, Your will be done. So we pray according to His will, and the, His will, to our knowledge, is revealed in the Bible. And it means, it means that we cannot pray for things that, ex- that uh, are expressed in the Bible as being against God's will. So we can pray like, Lord, should I sleep with my girlfriend? No. You just don't. You just don't do that because the Bible clearly says that, and we don't even have to pray about that. Lord, should I be in church on Sunday? No, you don't have to pray about that. You just come because God says you should, that's something you uh, must, must do. 
Um, so uh, we pray for the things that the Bible tells us to pray, and but we don't pray for the things the Bible tells us not to pray that is against the, His will. And it says that, I'll get to you in just a second. It says that we're to pray for people living or yet not to be born. So not for, we don't pray for things in the past. We don't pray for people who died yesterday, two years ago, ten years ago, whatever. We pray for people who are living or yet unborn. Um, we see that, you know, that's Jesus' pattern. John 17, Jesus is praying. He, he prays for himself in verses 1 through 5. Then he prays for his disciples that are alive with them there in verses 9, 6 to 19. Then he prays for everybody in the future who believe in the testimony of the apostles in verses 20 through 26. But he doesn't pray backwards. So we don't pray for the dead. Because as Hebrews 9, 27 says, it is appointed for man once to die, then after that, judgment. There is no second chance after, after death. And but you can see how the, uh, the Roman Catholic context in which Europe finds itself comes through very, very clearly in how uh, this, these sections were, were written. Does it make sense to you? All right, Renee. I have a question about the Psalms listed at the end of 23. Yes. What does it mean to pray with understanding? That you know what you're saying. Yeah. Um, it, it, so if you look at 1 Corinthians 14, you know, Paul, Paul regulates praying in tongues, right? And he regulates by saying, okay, this is how you do it, you limit and so on, but he says, I prefer that you pray with a tongue that can be understood. There's more benefit for everybody if I pray with my mind and my spirit. So. That's why the confession says, okay, if that's how God, that's Paul says he, that we better, that's what we should focus on, right? So that's um, uh, with understanding. So if it's allowed, we, there are prayers we don't understand, right? But Romans 8 talks about those utterings that cannot be grown. But what, what, is, what are those utterings? Those groanings that cannot be uttered, I think it's actually the... It cannot be uttered. Cannot be, they're not expressible. It's like, Lord, I don't even know what to pray, but you know my heart, the Spirit takes that to the Lord. So it's not vocal. So we, when we pray, we're praying with understanding. We're not, we, it's not transcendental meditation. We're not trying to empty our minds of everything. We're actually trying to fill our minds with the Word of God as we pray. Does it make sense? Yes. All right. There he is. What is this sin unto death? Uh, we're going to get there. Yes, we're going to get there, so hold on. Any other questions about the things I've said so far? So it does forbid us to pray to the sin and to, God, uh, and to death. And that's something that John mentions. And if we can go back and listen to our series of sermons on First John that we finished not too long ago, in First John 5, 16, it says, Don't pray for those that committed the sin unto death, which is probably the same sin as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that, that Jesus mentioned, which is attributing the works of the Spirit to Satan. And then also describing Hebrews chapter 6. It's not clear what that sin is, but it, according to 1 John 5.16, we'll know it when we see it. So that's, that's why the Bible says that's I'm going to stick with it. Yes, Karen? Should we just keep praying anyway? No, we should not pray for something the Bible forbids. So if we're... 
Yeah, so for example, Hebrews 6 says that if they deny, if, you're, if, you're, if they're a professing believer, and then they deny that Christ is who he says he is. They deny that Christ is the God-man. They deny that Christ died to, to atone their sins. They deny, then there's no hope of repentance for that one. Right? So there's a, there's a, a, a sustained, adamant, conscientious, structured denial of who Christ is. Which is different than excommunication. You can be excommunicated for lack of repentance for any sin. Right? So this is a very specific kind of sin. When you're believing in teaching something very wrong about Christ, and it's a change from what you, what you had professed, then Hebrews 6, there's no hope of repentance for that person. And that's the strength of that warning. So don't do that. Because if you do that, you're toast. So that tells us not to pray. You know, because there's no hope of repentance, so why are we going to pray for repentance? Right? So that's the one, there's, that's the one thing in, in the epistles that says there's no hope of repentance for that, for that person. All right? So we're going to stop that, this particular discussion here because I want to move on. This is not necessarily a series on prayer. It's about the elements of uh, uh, worship. So he starts with prayer, but then he moves on in section 5 to ordinary worship, so, which is the, the public worship of the Lord and also the private family worship of the Lord. In paragraph 5, it says this, The reading of the scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching, and the conscionable hearing of the word in obedience unto God, with understanding, faith, and reverence, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, as also the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ, are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God, besides religious oaths and vows, psalm fastings and thanksgiving upon special occasions, which are in their several times and seasons to be used in a holy and religious manner. Oh, so these are the things that should be included in a public and a Sunday worship of, of the Lord. The reading of the word, the preaching of the word, it's important, the reading of the word, so the reading of the word is not the pregame show. You got that, right? The reading of the word is actually an element, an important element of worship. I really dislike when a pastor stands up to preach and says, because of time, we're not going to read the passage today. Uh, the, he just threw away the only inspired thing that he had. And what, what is he saying by that? that the inspired, inerrant word of God is not as important as his fallible words that he's going to utter next. So we're going to skip the infallible word of God so it can get to the important things that I have come up with to tell you. Right? So the reading of the word is an, an essential element of worship. So we, in our, in our, we, we start our worship with the, with the word. Right? We have a call to worship. We respond to that by reading together the word and our response to reading. The, if you look at our bulletin, the reading of the word is listed as a separate element from the preaching of the word. And then we end with a benediction from the word. All this part because of, we believe that the reading of the word is an element of worship. And then preaching. Preaching is also an act of worship. The preaching and the hearing of preaching. 
And really, the central part of corporate worship is the preaching of the word. Protestant worship is centered upon the preaching of the word because that's what the Bible tells us is the center of worship. And you see that even in architecture. Right after the Reformation, uh, you have these huge cathedrals, and they're often in cruciform. They're often cruciform, means this, the shape of a cross. And at the center, so we had you know, people this way, people that way, people that way, and people this way. And at the, cro- at the crux, at where everything center, would be the table for communion, or as they call the altar. Because the center of the worship service would be the mass, the perpetual sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That every mass, every time the church got together was to sacrifice Christ again. So that was the center of worship. The Reformation comes along and says, no, Christ was sacrificed once for all. It doesn't have to be repeated every day or every Lord's Day. What the Bible says is that we should focus on the Word of God. So all of a sudden you have the, 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 mar- the marble, the concrete, ground, you know, put in the ground table removed, a movable table put on, and then a pulpit brought. And if you go to Europe and you visit, like uh, if you go to Zwingli's church in, in uh, Zurich or uh, Calvin's church in, in uh, that place where Calvin lived, Geneva, uh, and so on, uh, you're going to see a lot of churches, old, old, old churches have the pulpit kind of on the side over here. Because the, the homily, which that's how they called it, was the sideshow. The main event was the communion. But as Christians become more and more understanding of the Bible, the pulpit starts moving to the center. And the lines of the cathedrals are drawn so that the preaching, the, de- the holy desk, where the word of God is proclaimed, set forth, becomes a focus, even of the architecture of the building. Because the preaching of the word is the center, central part of the uh, worship of, of God. Any questions on that? Yes? Yes, but not this particular paragraph. It's meant, and why do you think I'm saying that? What does it say that's not private? There's one definite element here that's not private. Oh, sacraments. Sacraments, yes. So, yes, to your, yeah, you, the, in other parts of the Bible, we see those are also personal worship. To do by yourself, to do by, to do by your family outside of of Sunday to do it Wednesday when you get together and so on. But this is the, what they're getting at here is the public worship on the Lord's Day. That's, that's what this is primarily regulating. Does it make sense? Any other questions on that? Does that make more sense if I wiggle it? <laughs> Important as are the other elements of true worship, we have to remember that faith comes from the hearing of God's word. Not, and, and it's faith that we need for everyday life. So when Paul says in Romans 10, 17, so then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We always talk about the missionary endeavor and how we send preachers, that's true. But also we who are saved need to be hearing the word of God. And our faith increases as we hear the word of God proclaimed. There's something that happens here when we gather together. It doesn't happen when we listen to a podcast by ourselves. There's something that happens in the physical gathering, public proclamation of God's word that's not available anywhere else. But 
even even no, there are preachers that sound way better in person than on a podcast, and there are preachers that sound way better in a podcast than in person. That shows the, the, how there's a difference there that happens. Oh man, I'm, I was so excited. I lost track of time, and Amy's. I gave Amy a hard time the other day because she went long, and now she's there, like staring at me. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> So we just extended our lesson because of Amy, our series, by, by one Sunday, because we're going to then, now we're going to stop here, put a pause, and then pick up on this paragraph next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're good to us, and thank you that you've given us the public worship of you that we can do together. Bless us as we do that next. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.